0: I think I would be thrilled, right, I would be absolutely thrilled, you know, if I didn't have to protest anymore, the opioid crisis, right, because, you know, there'd there'd be less pain and struggles out there.
1: Hi, I'm Matt McKee, and welcome to Cherry Bomb the Podcast, a series of conversations with people about food, art, and sustainability. Today, I'm speaking in the studio with artist Dominic Esposito. This episode is sponsored by Cherry Bomb, a part of my Sweet Blast series of photos. This podcast is a companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the discussions about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability that Sweet Blast has inspired. You can browse and get images in the Sweet Blast collection at theartofmattmckee.com. Please share this episode to your Facebook, Twitter, and all your social media so your friends can listen and join in the conversation. Just a quick note before we begin, this episode is going to talk about substance abuse and addiction. If these are sensitive topics for you, please take care while listening. Dominic, it is great to see you again.
0: Oh, thanks, Matt. It's an honor to be here.
1: Seems like only a week ago I had you in here for a new artist portrait.
0: That's right. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Cool. Painless.
1: (laughs) I'd like to hear that. So you've, over the past five years or so, have transitioned from a previous life, as I like to call it, as a financial person, to becoming an artist doing large metal sculptures. And now again, you're also transitioning with paint.
0: That's right. You know, I I never really kind of pictured myself doing this, right? It just kind of happened, right? I left, uh, retired from kind of the financial industry. Well, even while I was there, I was sort of tinkering around with welding equipment, sculpting, you know, that sort of stuff. And I just kind of really got hooked on the ability to use heat hammer and, and your own sort of strength to smash and bend and cast metal into any shape you kind of want. Mm. And, uh, you know, I spend time now in my studio, you know, sometimes eight to 10 hours a day and, you know, <laughs> rush home to t- you know, grab, <laughs> grab lunch back out again. And it feels like I've been in there for like 10 minutes. And it's just mm-hmm. this sense of maybe it's, you know, the part of my brain I'm rediscovering is there, right? Using your hands, using your creativity to make things. And, and I just love it. So...
1: Before you went into finance as a young student in elementary, middle school, high school, college, even, were you dabbling in the arts then?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, not to the extent I am now, but I've always sort of had this passion for art, whether it was sort of, you know, playing around with cement forms when I was in middle school, right? And kind of creating shapes out of that, right? Or in college, I actually took photography classes as an elective black and white photography. And I absolutely just fell in love with it when I bought my camera and I was doing kind of experimentation and you're a photographer, so you should know this stuff incredibly well. But back then, you know, it was, you know, black and white and kind of developing it and being outside. One of the projects I did was I took my camera and I opened up the aperture, like completely, like for, you know probably a minute, right? In oh, the wow. dark. And I was up in Arlington, on Arlington Heights. And you can see sort of Boston in the background. I went out there with a flashlight, and just etched all this oh, stuff yeah. into the film effectively and creating a uh, work around that. And I, I really enjoyed that class and that part of it. And, and the professor, I remember him hanging my stuff outside. And I'm a business major and my stuff is hanging out there with art majors. so mm. so I, I really kind of enjoyed. I had the sim passion for it,
1: yeah. And you got validation. It sounds like as yeah, well from yeah. from and then it peers.
0: Kind of went quiet, you know. Life, you know, mm-hmm. growing up, <laughs> <laughs> so, the
1: pursuit of rent, things like that yeah. tend to get in the way sometimes of young art careers. That's right we have to address your coming out party i might describe it the opioid spoon
0: project that was in 2018 that's right it was it's art and activism so the first drop was um, june of 2018 and i can tell you a little bit about it what, what it really entails and basically i make these large 800 pound 10 foot opioid spoons right and they're massive and they weigh a lot and they're shaped and bent like an opioid spoon would be burnt and sort of colored on the inside and we place those i place those in front of Pharmaceutical companies like Purdue, Johnson and Johnson. In fact, we even done the FDA a year after that, and really to call attention to you know who's accountable for this man made disease. And the reason why I got into it is sort of take a step back. Is my brother Danny's been fighting substance use disorder for the last twelve, thirteen years now, mm-hmm. and it's sort of this personal battle for him. But it's also taken a lot of the family with him. Right, It's a family disease. It's not just one person that it's affects. So. And this sense of hopelessness and uh, no one being out there to help us out. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start hearing more and more about, you know, who's responsible and and how all these companies profited and made billions off of selling opioids, off of some pretty sketchy research. Fast forward now, four years, um, or three and a half years, and a lot of these companies have slowed down the manufacturing and the selling of these products. Purdue is now bankrupt effectively in all the lawsuits. They pretty much admitted their culpability in the whole epidemic. That's right. The company's paying close to $10 billion in fines. And the Sackler family is... Also paying uh, something like four and a half billion dollars. These are you know lawsuits have been going on now for a couple of years. Although the research has been out there, the lawsuits these aren't new. You know they started as far back as two thousand and one. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just because of corporate lobbying and corporate greed. They've been able to sort of hang on to those profits and continue selling for this long, right? So this is you know it's a twenty five year epidemic. They were just introduced in nineteen ninety five, which to me doesn't seem that long ago. Yeah. You know, the question I always pose to people, Matt, is like, what did you do before 1995, right? You know, if you sprained your ankle, hurt your knee or – you and don't get me wrong. Like opioids, you know, I think they do have a place in society, right? And, you know, you have end-of-life care, cancer patients, even acute surgery. You can make a pretty good argument that they're needed, right? Yeah,
1: like any tool that man has come up with. I mean, there's a use for it, and then there is a misuse of it.
0: That's right. Right. So, you know, when you have kids going in to get their wisdom tooth pulled when they're, you know, 16, 17 and, you know, get a 30 day supply of oxys, that's <laughs> probably not the right use. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you're at an age where you're highly susceptible to alcoholism and addiction and all the other stuff. And you mix the two together. You're, you've basically by taking opioids, even that early of an age, you've rewired physically rewired your brain. Right. Yeah.
1: Now, soon after I saw your original opioid spoon get displayed, you had another display that was at Suzanne Schultz's gallery that was, I think it was Bronze Brains that had uh, pills in one of them and dice in another one. Is that a continuation of that kind of exploring the hand of man in our own That's right,
0: yeah. I mean, that exhibition was called We're Only Human, and it really kind of speaks to how corporate greed and marketing really has an effect on us and sometimes we don't even know it you know now there's a lot more research out there you know but the Facebooks and the Instagrams and how they manipulate us into buying things or you know how ads chase us you know you feel like sometimes if I say something in a room the next thing I know is I get an ad for it so you know something's out there right and 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 this isn't just being like conspiracy theory these these are legitimate ways that you know we get marketed to that we don't know, and so th- that exhibition was, as you say, you know it was you know pills that are kind of obvious, right, but sometimes we don't even know that we need the pills right It's things like anxiety and you've got a band aid for everything right the band aid instead of the hard work it was the chips and the dice and poker cards. The third one was social media, so I had all the emblems of, like, Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all these, you know, kind of caked in this bronze brain. That was before TikTok came along.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the new addiction. Yeah, okay.
0: and that, that, was, um, that was a few
1: years ago, that work. For those that don't know, the work is beautifully executed, but it always has that darker theme that, in my mind anyway, it talks about the the darker side of humanity of what we do to dilute the world for ourselves. Yeah. Now you've moved into painting and are continuing to explore and expand your artistic skills. The new paintings feature a hoodied character throughout.
0: You know, the painting is, is relatively new. You know, I've only kind of been at it for about 18 months now. Mm. And what I'm doing with a lot of my work uh, from a technical standpoint, I'm, you know, I'm marrying both painting and sculpture. So I'm trying to bring them together. So a handful of my pieces also have this bronze sculptural component to it on top of the painting. And sculptural component, as well as the painted figures, as you correctly point out, Matt, is this hooded character. And most of the time, the face is invisible. And the hoodie, to me... It speaks to this language of how we are feeling, right? And the stigma around both mental health and how, you know, wearing your hoodie over your head really says to people, you know, leave me alone. Is sort of like this sense of isolation and Mm. loneliness that's out there. You know, it's been exacerbated with COVID-19 in the last couple of years. And it's also how... We deal with it as society, right? You know, a lot of times, you know, when we see someone with their hood over their head, it's automatically kind of language saying, kind of leave me alone, and we don't approach them. Um, Maybe it's us or the viewer that doesn't have the capacity to deal with it or want to deal with it, right? Versus the person who's actually in the hoodie. So it's a little bit of both. It's you, the viewer, versus person in the hoodie is it you in there? Right. <laughs> so a lot of times I feel like oh, I'm in there, you know, and the work sort of connects to also, you know, substance use disorder, because in some sense, a lot of it is a prequel to substance use disorder, or is it, you know, derived? Right. And so that work that I did, you know, that, you know, I showcased it just last March down in West Palm for the first time was called blank slate. And it's talks about how, Is it our environment that creates who we are, right? Or is it genetics, right? And that's a big question for me. Like, you know, you look at someone's like, okay, you know, there's definitely a sense of genetics with a lot of diseases out there, right? But there's also a sense of like, it's our culture and environment, right? Yeah. That create who we are, right? If you had a father that was abusive, not you, Matt, but, you know, (laughs) if you did... What does that mean that you're going to be abusive, right? You know, what creates that? So that's a cultural, behavioral... Yeah, trained behavior. Yeah, and, and it's passed down generation to generation. And you can say, okay, it's not genetics, right? But it is still passed down because, you know, abuse gets passed down. So that's what the exhibit talks about. Is it, you know, who creates this? Is the mental health something genetic or is it something that is culturally there, right? Yeah. How much has
1: raising children changed your perspective on wanting to talk about these kinds of things?
0: A lot. A lot, actually. You know, these are all in some sense lived experiences for me, right? Some of it is, you know, related to raising kids and the issues that come about with, you know, social media and the bullying and mm. the FOMO, you know, fear of missing out, I think is a huge component of raising kids. And as a parent, you know, I put my parent hat back on. It's it's really hard to to actually navigate this these days. Yeah. Because there's no script. You break your leg, you know, you know what to do, but if a kid is not being invited to a party and you see it on Instagram, there's a lot of issues that get created around, I'd say, you know, social media that didn't exist. Yeah. Less than 10 years ago, right? It's always challenging being a parent, you know, and every generation has their challenges. I think this is just a new challenge for us Mm -hmm. and we're in uncharted territory. And a lot of that is incorporated in my work because, you know, I think, you know, as an artist, you know, I made a promise to myself that my work would reflect who I am and the passions and both dark and happy. We haven't seen the happy side <laughs> yet,
1: but hopefully. <laughs> so the happiness will be coming. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I, you know, and, and I do, you know, have a lot of fun with the kids and, you know, um, yeah. and there's moments in life that, you know, need to be also broadcast as an artist, right? Yeah.
1: Well, certainly to bring up the harder subjects, you can't hide your head in the sand for these things because it's going to come back and bite you no matter what. Yeah. So by talking about it, I think either through the dialogue of the art or in person is hugely cathartic in some ways. And also it leads to solutions, I hope. But to that end, what would a more hopeful piece be for you? What are you doing with your work? Maybe a better way of putting it.
0: I have some sculptures that are sort of more, I call them kind of whimsical because they're kind of me having, you know, a good time in the studio. Mm -hmm. I have this sort of nine foot matchstick looking guy that's kind of running, right? And it's called Running from 2020. I just started tinkering with it and and I just love the idea. And then I have this other piece on Newbury Street. It looks like these weird ghostly figures that are all kind of tied together, but one's upside down. You know, there's five of them and they're all sort of, connected right and they're all kind of making this weird stance and it's very abstract and it's called look at me ma because it's like you know (laughs) let's not forget to have fun right so it's like these ghostly looking figures having fun right so that stuff i've done in the last few years i love making lists so i just make lists of things that i want to discuss or bring happiness to me and you know some of them are you know whether it's you know being married or getting married or Witnessing your childbirth, being in there, and those moments, you know, those first weeks or two, uh, I think are some of the greatest moments in your life, right? You know, I don't know how you express that in art yet. Those are moments, right? But in a sense, you know, what we're really kind of left with is memories. And those memories to me are the ones that maybe I could broadcast out in a language of art.
1: Okay. What kind of kick starts the process for you as you're thinking about these memories or the darker side of humanity? What is the genesis of a new piece for you?
0: There's no process, right? There's a process to when I make it. I know that and I can tell you what that is. You know, we were talking about there's a book out by John Cleese. It's called Creativity and How to Spark Your Mind. And I picked that up. I think I have almost too much creativity <laughs> because I have too many ideas, more ideas than time. Mm-hmm. So I'm not even sure how they kind of get sparked, but it's just, you know, like the hoodie stuff, right? You know, I my daughter came downstairs one day and she was wearing her hoodie down, and I was just intimidated by it, mm-hmm. right? And this was, you know, four or five years ago, and so it's always stuck in my mind as this hoodie as this language. It just hit home with so many people, right? Those lived experiences, it's a sense that you're not alone, right? That other people are going through other things similar to that or as a parent or as a sibling or or whatever. To answer your question, I don't know what it really kind of happens to kind of generate those ideas. I always want to ask that question because uh, people will come
1: up to me all the time and ask the same question, and it's like, for me, these ideas like you almost fully formed in my head I've trained myself to recognize that there is a common language that's happening that if I see something that's resonating with me, that I should go forward with it. But otherwise these ideas are fully formed and the execution is, that's just process
0: at that point. That's yeah, just, it's just doing it's stuff just at process. That yeah. Yeah. I mean like the spoon was a very dark symbol for me. Right. Cause I remember my mom calling me screaming that she had found another burnt spoon in the house. Oh wow. So, you know, you know, my, you know, my brother's in recovery, you know, and you know, six months, In recovery and then all of a sudden you know you find another burnt spoon in the house and it's just sort of sends off like your heart starts beating rapidly and you know like oh we're here we go again right and so that that's how that sort of symbol kind of kind of just got etched in my brain right as a negative symbol a macabre symbol so so i think you know lived experiences give us tons of things that that we want to show talk about and and it's sort of like this group empathy around them mm. um, which is powerful yeah
1: i don't want this to be a necessarily a sensitive question that this is not a gotcha show but i wanted to ask with you dropping the spoon in these different places and putting a very personal family trauma out on display how does the rest of your family feel about that dialogue getting started
0: at first i didn't know what the reaction would be now you know, it's pretty evident my family's, you know, they're incredibly proud of what I've done. They're happy. Once I did that, you just realize there's so many other people who have done similar, uh, not big 800-pound spoons, but are out there, you know, <laughs> fighting and the activists as well. We've gotten to know a lot of the activists kind of community. Oh, wow. Back to your question, like, they're all behind me. Yeah, it, it's a touchy subject, but it's also a subject that needs to be discussed mm-hmm. more openly. That's part of the battle. And that's the reason why it's been so hard to get help, even to this day. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a lot better than it was four or five years ago. If you're in recovery, you know, there's a lot more programs. There's still not a ton of government action out there. And there's not a lot of government funding. And that stigma is starting to erase. Like you see a lot more about it on TV. You see a lot more documentaries being made about it. So that's slowly starting to happen. I always make an analogy to the HIV AIDS crisis, right? And, you know, it took that community 10 years of really kind of rallying and protesting and flipping cars. And you can go back and watch all this footage of what they actually did. And it was pretty remarkable. And I feel like, you know, we're probably 1987, 88 in that (laughs) battle, right? We got to get to, you know, 91 where you have the Ryan Act and the real change. And we're not there yet. so. At least the pace seems to have accelerated exactly. from yeah. stigma to
1: acceptance to Let's yeah. solve for this.
0: Yeah, I yeah. hope. Anyway, the stigma—that's an old battle, right? You mm-hmm. know, what I mean, I don't even bring that up anymore. I think we're past that. I think we're past that. I think you know, people are, are more open to discussing it um, yeah. than than they were before. I think that the new battle is really kind of getting funding, getting beds available, getting commitments. Like most artists,
1: once you kind of crack into a theme or a subject, it can be hard not to follow it down the rabbit hole to see
0: where it leads. What are you curious about tackling next? I'm working towards a solo show. There's a solo show I have in Boston in January. I do want to start tackling some of the stuff that brings happiness to my life, right? As well, right? Okay. Something maybe around my children and raising them and Mm -hmm. accomplishments and things that parents are proud of. I think there's always going to be this sort of social injustice angle with my work as well.
1: Yeah, I find that with a lot of people. Once they're able to tap into that inner anger, yeah, hopefully balance is maintained throughout it. But it, it becomes, okay, this is another thing that I really want to talk about. And this is the next thing I really want to talk about that
0: sparks yeah. my fire. Yeah. I'm working on a, a larger sculpture as well, which is more along the lines of fabrication versus casting, which I've cast a lot in the last couple of years and i'm fabricating this tower of medicine cabinets so <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> you know originally it was going to be 12 feet tall but it looks like it's only going to be eight because the gallery space is uh, <laughs> it has eight foot ceilings yeah and you can just picture like all these medicine cabinets with glass and stainless steel and mirrors and oh. kind of all piled up on each other right and You're looking into them, they're looking back at you, you know, it's you and the people that are in the exhibition. It just really kind of speaks to how we run to the medicine cabinet for everything, (laughs) right? And uh, it's gotten to the point where, as humans, we're not even allowed now to feel emotion, right? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, we all want to have this steady state of emotion, right? You know, you feel sad, you know, all of a sudden. Don't get me wrong, like there is need for anti anxiety, antidepressants, but you know, a lot of times we don't do what we say we should be doing, right? Whether going going for a hike, going for a walk, yeah, cooking dinner.
1: George Carlin, two in the mouth, son, two in the mouth. Yeah. Becomes the default rather than actually experiencing frustration or loneliness or whatever it is and learning how to function beyond
0: that. Yeah. You know, that's a bigger theme for me, but that's what that exhibit, that work will will speak to. And but it's been great kind of getting back in the studio and Stepping a little bit away from the painting, but now you know welding, burning your fingers, and you know, <laughs> and you know sticking your finger in a in a grinder. You know th- those those experiences. Yes, uh, that's part of the fun, I
1: think. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. What do you wish you knew when you started this particular journey?
0: What I've learned with art, which is different from previous careers, like to let things kind of just kind of flow and bounce off you, right? Don't be so thick-skinned about everything, right? And and it's hard in art because you think you're told, what's the statistics? Like you're told no, like 85, 90% of the time, right? And that's hard, right? Coming from a previous career in finance. So that's been hard. And I wish I knew it was going to be like that, right? Where I can kind of get, maybe get prepared for it. So.
1: Yeah, you can't beat experience. When artists are working on these pieces with these deeper social issues, and one of the questions I always think of is, what would it look like if it was done, if the original problem was solved? I mean, how would you feel if the opioid spoon was instrumental in changing hearts and minds? I hate that phrase, but I mean...
0: yeah. I think I would be thrilled, right? I would be absolutely thrilled, you know, if I didn't have to protest anymore the opioid <laughs> crisis, right? Because, you know, there'd, there'd be less pain and struggles out there. So I would be absolutely ecstatic if if something like that happened. Okay. I think with all the work I do, whether it's opioid crisis, social injustice, mental health, all these things, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I wish there was, you know, real change and real solutions, mm. and at least in my generation, right? Yeah. So. That'd be amazing. Yeah. But we do run our own nonprofit. It's called the Opioid Spoon Project. But we're really out there kind of raising awareness for the opioid crisis and really trying to get it at a national level. So if somebody wants to help out. We have tons of volunteers out there. We're creating some new projects around that. A large memorial we're about to launch next month. I'm going to start speaking at a lot of universities. We had one venue a few years ago at Boston University. We're trying to duplicate that and some other schools in the area. So but we're always looking for volunteers. And if you go to the theopioidspoonproject.com, that's our, our website and sort of landing ground for, you know, events that we have going on around that. But there are also, you know, tons of organizations that we've worked with around the Boston area that are just great. You know, there's places like Learn to Cope, which is a really kind of helps out a lot of families dealing with this, right? Mm. So that's a place to sort of gather in groups and talk about these issues, you know, that your kid or sibling or someone is facing. There's grief support groups out there, there's team sharing. That's national as well, but the headquarters are here in Marlborough, Mass, that we've worked with. So there are tons of other groups. You can always send us an email and, you know, we'll get back to you and get you in the right direction of where to go. What would you like your legacy to be? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> if I were to encapsulate it in one word, I would say, you know, Dominic was a very empathetic person. I wore people's pain. So that would be one thing. It's a good answer. I know how important cooking is
1: to you and your family, food and the camaraderie around the kitchen. I remember from the time I was able to go over and visit you over at your studio and at your house, just how big your kitchen was. And uh, it looked like the central gathering place for anything that happens
0: at your house. What's your comfort food at the end of the day? I would say my comfort food is probably pasta dish or probably like some sort of Pasta bolognese or something like that. So and it's just the sense of like slow cooking, the aromas, all that, you know, the caramelized vegetables and the slow cooking, you know, <laughs> and carrots. There's just amazing. And so to me that that would be my my go to comfort food. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So you said you had
1: a show coming up in January in Boston that hasn't been named yet, though, but do
0: you have any details you can share? Yeah, yeah. The location, it's a piano craft gallery in Mm. Boston. I'm really kind of thrilled about it. It's a great space. My work tends to be pretty large. We're going to try to make it interactive. So like there's not just this wall of (laughs) art, right? So people get to participate in it you know we're going to try and get some performance artists as well so i think it's going to be really cool and we're going to have hopefully different events throughout the month of january's so i think it'll be an interesting show because it'll probably take a little bit of a step away from your traditional kind of art shows mm-hmm. and make it a lot more interactive and less white wall heavy right I yeah. Don't know yeah how to even term that sounds intriguing
1: it sounds like that's gonna be an exciting show Thank you for checking in with this episode of Cherry Bomb, the podcast. I'm your host, Matt McKee. Today's guest is Dominic Esposito. You can find him online at dominicesposito.com. You can also go to www.opioidspoonproject.com for more information on that project. Please share this episode to your Facebook, Twitter, and all your social media so your friends can listen and join in the conversation. Don't forget to check out the show notes at theartofmattmckee.com for all the links to his work and to the other episodes of Cherry Bomb the Podcast. This episode of Cherry Bomb the Podcast could not have been done without the help of Suzanne Schultz and Canvas Fine Arts, the specialist in coaching for creatives, and editing by the always sublime Bill Shamlian at Orb Sound. Thanks for listening, and let's start the conversation.